0: This morning, we're going to get the opportunity to talk a little bit more about conversations with Christ. I think it's fascinating to look at how Christ interacted with people around us. If you want to open your Bibles or your phone apps, whatever you use, we'll be in John seven fifty three to eight eleven. Uh, the verses will also be up on the screen if you'd rather just use those. If you need a Bible, if you want to use one, there should be some in the seats in front of you underneath. Feel free to keep those, please. Um, while you're turning there, I want to tell you guys about Walt Bettinger, and Walt was, maybe still is, the CEO of Charles Schwab, um, you know, huge, multi-multi-million, probably the billion-dollar company. And a couple years ago, he did an interview with, uh, I think, Forbes, and he was talking about his interviewing practices, right? And keep in mind, this is the CEO of a massive company, so the people he's interviewing are, are big deal executives. And he revealed that when they're getting really serious about a candidate, Walt takes them out to a meal, breakfast, lunch, dinner, whatever. But he contacts the restaurant ahead of time, and he tells them, hey, intentionally mess up this person's order. Like, don't worry, I'm going to tip you well, you'll be compensated. But mess up this person's order. And what Walt shared in his interview was that you learn a lot about someone by watching how they interact with people when they're not necessarily in a teaching moment, right? When they're not necessarily giving a planned talk, but just interacting with someone, you really see into who that person is. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love Jesus' sermons. I love his intentional talks in times of teaching. But I think we learn just as much from his conversations with people. I think we learn just as much from how he interacted with the people in his everyday life. And so that's what I want to look at this morning. We're going to look at the story of Jesus and the rescued woman Uh, which actually interrupted a more structured teaching time. But before we do, let's pray. God, God, you're so incredibly, indescribably amazing. And we are overjoyed to be in your presence. We are so grateful for the opportunity to gather with our family and to just worship you and and to spend time just solely giving you the praise that you deserve. We ask that this time is an offering that's pleasing to you, these words glorify you, that you use this time to draw us closer to your heart and to who you would have us be. It's in your son's precious name we pray, amen. All right, so let's read John seven fifty three to eight eleven. They each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Listen to this verse. This is going to be an answer to a question I'm going to ask you in a couple of seconds, so I'm going to cheat and give you the answer. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. What, oh my goodness, what an incredible story, right? So we're going to look at this conversation, we're going to look at this interaction, and we're going to look at it from the perspective of kind of the three main parties. First, we're going to look at the Pharisees, okay? Were they coming to Jesus humbly, right? Had they had a conversation that morning like, oh man, we caught this woman in adultery, the law says to stone her, that doesn't, does that really seem like what we should do? You know what? Jesus is wise and loving, let's go seek his opinion, and we'll listen to him. Yeah, That's a good idea. No, right? They didn't care about what Jesus had to say. I told you, I gave you guys the answer, right? They didn't care. They were approaching Christ with a completely self-serving agenda. They had their desired outcome. See, in their mind, there was one of two options. Because this was a legal question. This was a legal question they knew the technical answer to. They tried to play it off as spontaneous, right? Like, imagine how fishy and weird it would seem to you guys if right when I got up here and was like, okay, you can open your Bible, and like that door flew open, and a crowd came out, and they were like, oh, hey, we have a spontaneous question for you. Like, no, this was a planned trap. They were trying to take down Christ. They wanted an audience. They wanted a crowd because they thought one of two things was going to happen. They were going to ask him this legal question, and he was either going to say, yes, stone her and then that upholds their sense of superiority and it upholds their sense of authority, right? And it validates who they are in the culture. Or he was gonna say, no, don't stone her," And then they say, whoa, so you're, you're telling us the entire law or culture is built around is, you're just throwing it out, you're ignoring the law? You're fomenting rebellion, right? You're trying to raise up an insurrection. So they thought this was a win-win for them. And sadly, this is kind of the default mode for Pharisees and the leaders of the day, right? We see this over and over again, which is really pretty tragic. Two Sundays ago, when Dan was preaching on the Sabbath, he explained how the Pharisees literally followed Jesus around throughout town, just like hoping to catch him breaking one of their man-made rules, right? The, just the unbelievable pettiness of that. And you also see it when Jesus is arrested. We won't turn to John, but in John 18... 18, 19 to 24, Jesus is first arrested. He's brought before Annas. Annas asks him questions trying to get to a specific answer, right? He wants Jesus to admit this one thing, but Jesus won't. So he kind of, okay, passes him along to Caiaphas. Caiaphas, same thing. He's got a question that he's asking, but he's got the answer he wants in mind. So he has Jesus now, and he's asking him this question, but Jesus won't give him the answer he's looking for. He won't meet Caiaphas's agenda. So Caiaphas shuttles him along to Pilate for the first time. And we're gonna pick up there, this is in Luke 23, verses 1 to 8. And this is the first time Jesus goes before Pilate. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. See, Pilate had an answer he wanted. He had his ulterior motive, his self-serving agenda for his time with Christ. Christ wouldn't meet that agenda, so the moment Pilate sees an out, he seizes it. I mean, it's tragic, but this is their default mode for interacting with Jesus. Here's what I want you to do for me. You're not going to do it? All right, next guy. Has anyone ever done this to you, right? Like, have you ever been approached by someone with an ulterior motive? Doesn't it completely destroy the interaction? If I'm being honest, it's pretty insulting. A couple years ago, I had a, a... a friend from college, more of an acquaintance, not someone close enough that we stayed in touch with since graduation, but we, we played on IM teams together, had some classes together, lived in the same floor the one year. And he, he texts me out of the blue, right? And he's like, hey man, I was just thinking about you the other day. I got your number from so-and-so and just wanted to see how you were doing. I was like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, we're doing well. So we texted back and forth, you know, caught up. And like a night later, he calls me. He's like, hey, man, I just, I really enjoyed talking with you the other day. You know, is, is Addie there? I got married. I'd love for you guys to meet my wife. And so she and I are like, oh, that's pretty nice. That means something. Right? This guy was thinking about us. He reached out to us. He wants to establish this relationship. This is pretty cool. We get 10 seconds into the conversation, the four of us. We both put our phones on speakerphone. We get 10 seconds into the conversation, and he drops this line on us. Listen. So the real reason I reached out to you the other day is we have a great opportunity for you. How would you like to make more money without having to do anything different in your day-to-day routine? Yeah. Yeah, he wanted us to join a pyramid scheme. That was why he reached out to establish the relationship. Do you think I maintained interest in that conversation for a whole lot longer? No, not at all. We were like, no, man, like... Uh, and if you want to forget my number, that's totally fine with us, right? Because that doesn't make you feel good. It doesn't make you feel cherished, like the person actually values the relationship. And look, that's a, that's a trite example. But what I'm getting at is it's easy, and sadly, it's too easy for us, for me. Oh, I'm not supposed to do that. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, George. Um, it's too easy for me to look at the Pharisees, to look at Herod, to look at Pilate, to look at you know my buddy from college, and to judge them for that. But the question I'm forced to ask myself, and the question I want to invite you guys to ask yourself, and really, I want us to be a church that's not afraid to ask ourselves tough questions. Do we approach Christ with an agenda? I mean, do we approach Christ with the same mindset? How many times could we say in our prayers, hey, listen, God, the real reason I'm praying to you right now is here's what I need. Do we approach Christ with an agenda? How many times can we take the attitude of Pilate and could we say, man, God, there's, there's this thing I want to do because it would just be easy. It would be easier to do this. This is what everybody's telling me to do. This is what the world around me wants me to do. It would make my life so much smoother if you would just give me the okay to do this. So could you, could you just give me this little answer That'll make my life? No? Yeah, okay, pass. Do we approach Christ with the same agenda as Pilate? Do we approach Christ with the same agenda as Herod? Hey God, I-, I know my prayer life is non-existent. I know I don't spend any time in scripture. I know I check out during worship. I know we really don't have a relationship. But here's the thing, like my week's been crazy. I, just, I mean, the Bible literally says Herod wanted to see Jesus because he wanted him to perform a sign for him. Do we approach Christ with the agenda of, hey, Jesus, I need you to perform a sign for me. I need a miracle this week, okay? No? Pass. It's not a fun question, but we have to ask ourselves, do we approach Christ with an agenda like the Pharisees? That's my takeaway from this interaction, because that's a humbling question, but it's something that I think really gets in our way, both as individuals and as a church. And here's the other thing. We don't just do this with our prayer. We don't just do this with our worship. Where I actually fear that we approach with an agenda more than anything else is our time in Scripture. I mean, do we read the Bible equally? Do we spend time in the passages that don't make us feel good? Do we spend time in the passages that convict us and challenge us? Right? A lot of churches know where they stand on homosexuality, where they stand on divorce, where they stand on embezzlement. There aren't a lot of churches that are willing to talk about where they stand on gossip and slander and envy. Do we approach Scripture with an agenda? Do we seek out the passages that are going to make us feel good about ourselves? Do we approach the Bible saying, all right, here's my preconceived notion. Here's my previously held position. What verse will allow me to stay in that position? Something I found, and you don't don't have to do this, but I'm just sharing. This is what I found has worked in my life. This has been a blessing in my life. Every time I'm about to open Scripture, I pray a simple prayer. God, teach me your truth. Don't let me read what I want to read. Don't let me take away what I want to take away. Teach me your truth in your words, whatever that means for my life. Because here's the thing. The only agenda I want to have with Christ is total surrender. Right? I don't want to come to Christ with a, here's what you need to do for me, here's the answer I want to receive, here's the sign you need to perform. I want to come before Christ with an agenda of nothing but, you're God, I'm not, do what you will. Because here's what we see in Christ's response to the Pharisees He doesn't care about their agenda. Not even, I mean, not even the smallest bit. Christ has no time for the Pharisees' agenda because he's focused on something much, much deeper. And that's what I want to be like, right? The Pharisees come to him, and they want to talk about this woman's sin. But they don't view her as a person, right? The act of adultery requires two people. They only dragged one before. She was a pawn to them. She was a means to their end. They want to focus on the surface level. Let's talk about the sin so that we can get our desired outcome. Jesus ignores that question entirely. And for some reason in my mind, I had always thought this happened pretty, you know, bing, bang, boom. It doesn't. Like, Jesus ignores their question so long that they pester him and badger him about it. In verse 6 or verse 7, in verse 6 through 7, it talks about the Pharisees asked the question, right? And Jesus bends down and writes on the ground. And then it says, but they kept on questioning him. It wasn't they repeated their question once, like, oh, maybe Jesus didn't hear it. Like, they kept, the image I get in my mind, I work in a pediatrician's office, so I see a lot of kids. And I'm not a parent, so I, I have no personal experience, but I see this, right? This happened just the other week. Mom, 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 mom. That's the image I get here, right? Like, Jesus is like, no, I'm not answering that question. No, Jesus, 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 no, no, we have this question. It's almost like he was trying to give them a way out. It's almost like he was trying to give them a chance to back off, like, no, guys, you, you really don't want to ask this question. Because I forget this, but Jesus loved those Pharisees. Jesus loved those Pharisees. He cared about their hearts. He cared about their eternity. Right? When Jesus was on the cross, he prayed to God, saying, God, forgive the people who put me here, because he loved them. And so that's why he ignores the shallow to go for the depth. See, they want to talk about this woman's sin. Jesus wants to talk about their hearts. And my question is, am I as focused and committed in my conversations? I mean, do I care about the people I interact with on a daily basis? Do I care about my neighbors? Do I care about my coworkers? Do I care about strangers I run into at Kroger's? Right? Do I care about the people in my life with the same level of focus that Christ did? Am I willing to ask the hard questions? Am I willing to take the conversations beyond the surface to the depth? Because it matters to me where that person spends eternity. Jesus did. Jesus constantly redirected conversations to depth to talk about people's hearts. In Mark 2, 1 through 12, the lame man is lowered through the roof, right? His friends cut a hole in the roof. They lowered the paralyzed guy down. Before Jesus heals his paralysis, he forgives the man's sins because he's more concerned with that man's heart and that man's eternity. In John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he wants to talk about the signs for the day. And Jesus says, no, let's talk about the signs of eternity, The Samaritan woman at the well wanted to talk about water for the day. Jesus says, no, let's talk about living water for eternity. See, the hearts of the people around Jesus mattered to him. He loved them. He cared about them. And the question I have to ask myself is, do I? I mean, think about it. Do I? Right? Think of these examples. We're in Richland County, the land of a thousand medical systems. Like, I work for one. I know plenty of you guys do. What is better for medicine to just continually dab at the symptoms and slap a Band-Aid on it? Or is it better to take the time to go deep and address the root problem? Imagine if you took your car to a mechanic. You take your car to the mechanic and you're like, it's making a terrible screeching sound every time I turn. It sounds like metal's ripping. The mechanic was like, oh, yeah, I can fix that for two bucks. And he hands you a pair of earplugs. They're not, you won't hear the screech. Hands up if you'd accept that solution from your mechanic. (laughs) None of us! Right? My wife and I recently had to do some plumbing remodeling and there was a valve that just wouldn't stop leaking. So we took the valve apart and we kept like, we didn't just stick a bucket under it and we're like, well, there's our life now, there's a leak. No, we took things apart, we kept working our way backwards till we wound up replacing a broken pipe. Why? Because in the practical problems of our life, we want to address them at the source. When it comes to the practical issues day to day, we want to address them at the source so that we don't have to deal with them again. What about our mental burdens? What about our emotional problems? What about our emotional baggage? What about the spiritual weight of things? Are we content with just staying surface level because, ah, that's a tough conversation? Or like Christ, are we willing to go deeper? I mean, suppose your coworker comes to you and they confide in you, I've just been so anxious lately. The stress is weighing on me. It's a physical weight. How do we reply? Maybe we reply with one of those stupid cliché like, welcome to adulthood, am I right? Get out of here. That's such a waste of a conversation. Maybe because this is such an ego-driven society, we say something like, yeah, aren't we all? And we move on because I've got my own baggage to deal about. Right? Or maybe we throw a well-meaning thought. We mean well, like, man, I know when I was really stressed, it helped to sleep a little bit more. Oh, you've tried that? You're still anxious? All right, good luck. Right? Like, I'm thinking about you. Because that's easy. It's easy to do that. It would have been easy for Jesus to just deal with the question and, you know, okay, let the chips fall where they may. Do we take the time with our coworkers? Do we take the time with our neighbors? Do we take the time with our family members to say, okay, let's talk about the next level. Let's let's go down. Let's dig. Let's probe this. Let's see where your heart is. And maybe, just maybe, we dig and we realize that their marriage is on the rocks and they don't know what to do because they've always placed their identity in their relationships. Maybe we dig and we find they've placed their security in their finance and their spouse just had their hours cut and their world is shaken. Right? If we take the time to ask the hard questions, maybe we start having more meaningful conversations. I'm, I'm going to be honest here for a second. I mean, I'm always honest with this. This is going to be a little blunt. I hate the phrase, waiting for opportunities. Oh my goodness, it drives me nuts when Christians are like, oh, I'm, just, I'm waiting for God to give me opportunities. What if we made opportunities? What if we stopped passively waiting and we made opportunities? You want a conversation about God? Then steer the conversation towards God. It was good enough for Jesus. That should make it good enough for us. I had someone say to me one time, yeah, I'm going on a six-hour car ride with this person. I'm, just, I'm really hoping the opportunity comes up to, to ask him about God. You mean like a confined space for six hours? That's a pretty good opportunity. Why are we so afraid to direct the conversation towards God? Jesus modeled, for this, or modeled this for us constantly. He took what people wanted to keep shallow and he went after their hearts because their hearts mattered to him. So my question is, if we claim to be disciples of Christ, do the people's hearts around us matter to us? Are we willing to engage them out of a place of deep love for them? I want to be like Jesus. I want us to look like Jesus. And that means not being afraid to ask the hard questions and to go after what really matters and what really is driving a person. All right? So that's the Pharisees. Those are the questions that that arise. Those are the questions that stick out to me when I look at how Jesus and the Pharisees interacted. Now let's look at the woman. Look at the woman. Imagine yourself in her position. Okay? Imagine. You're dragged out in front of people, people who you probably know. Those weren't massive towns, right? Imagine if you were brought right up here and your sins were aired out for everybody to listen to so that you could be used to further someone else's goal. I mean, think about how you'd feel. Throw that next slide up with those words, please. I should say please. These are some of the words I came up with. When I put myself in her shoes, and maybe some of you have felt like her, right? Resigned, rejected, humiliated, scorned, trapped, afraid, desperate, hopeless. Look, she knew what she had done, and she knew the law of the time. She knew what was coming. So I have to imagine that she stood there, utterly humiliated, resigned to an impending death sentence, feeling entirely alone. That there wasn't a person in the world who cared about her, and she just wanted it to be over. Wouldn't you? I mean, if I was standing here with my sins aired in front of all you guys, and I knew. That a death sentence was coming, I'd be like, "Look, I'll I'll give it to myself. Let's just get this over with." See, she was expecting a death sentence, and we should all be able to relate to that woman. Romans three twenty three: For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you think you can't relate to that woman, I can relate to that woman. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. She knew what was coming. Every single person in that audience knew what was coming. They knew they were about to witness a death sentence be delivered, right? We knew what was coming. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. There was a death sentence on its way until until that death sentence met the person of Christ. Because the second half of Romans 6.23 is, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, that woman was dragged in front of that crowd to face death. Instead, she found mercy. She was expecting execution. She found life. She was dealt with out of spite and contempt, and she encountered compassion and love. I mean, unflinching, unyielding, overwhelming love. And the question that I have to ask myself, And the question that I want all of you to ask yourselves, do people find that love in me? When people interact with me, do they find that compassion? Do they find that mercy? Do they find that love? When people interact with Community Bible Church, when people interact with the church in America, do they find Christ? Or do they find a group of Pharisees? I mean, if, if you talked to people who have interacted with me, would they identify me more as a Pharisee or would they identify, identify me more as Christ in that scenario? Are our lives marked by mercy? Are they, are they defined by compassion and love? Who are we to the world around us? Because keep in mind, this was playing out in front of a packed temple, right? This wasn't occurring in some back alley or a private patio. This was in front of a massive crowd of people watching Jesus interact with the Pharisees and watching Jesus interact with this woman, knowing what society dictated at the time. But what did they see instead? See, we all know, I guess we all know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's a beautiful verse. I mean beautiful verse. There's a reason why we love that verse so much. But we can't gloss over verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And Jesus reinforced this, right? This happened in front of a packed crowd. The moment they're done, he resumes or actually begins the teaching that he originally set out to do. And almost immediately, if we jump back to John 8, we hear this. John 8, 15 and 16. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. I mean, they literally just watched this happen. Right? They just watch Jesus have the opportunity to pass judgment on someone and how does he respond with love? What does John 3.17 say? That Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world? So why has the church seemed to think that that's our role? I mean, if Jesus wasn't sent to condemn the world, why has the church so readily adopted the position of condemnation? I don't know. It burdens me. It's what I pray about. It's what I actively fight against. But we need to ask ourselves these tough questions. Is it because we're content to look more like the Pharisees? Or are we desiring to look more like Jesus? See, this woman found the unexpected. Right? And my question is, do people find that in me? I mean, when people think about who I am, how I live, how I I speak, how I treat them, Do I look like Christ to them? And if I don't, do I want to? I mean, how many of us know the answer to that question? Do you want to look like Christ? Yeah, of course. All right. Do your actions back that up? Do your words back that up? Are we truly consumed and devoted to pursuing the person of Christ and being transformed to look more and more like him, especially to the world around us? Because there are a lot of people who would identify with that woman. There are a lot of people who would tell you that church isn't for them. They don't want me there. I'm not good enough to be there. I don't deserve to be there. The church hates me. Christians don't like me. God is against me. I've heard people say that, and I can't think of a single more tragic thought than, than truly thinking that God is against you. I mean, that breaks my heart that there are people who think that church isn't for them who think that Christians hate me, who think that God is against me. And so I'm left wondering if people think this, is it because we're not concerned with looking like Christ? We're happy to know about Him. We hope those people find out about Him. But I'm good where I am. Or do I care enough to ask the hard questions? Do I care enough to defend people? Do I care enough to exhibit love and mercy and compassion? I mean, when people look at the church Did they see grace and truth? Right? Because that's what Jesus exhibited in his love. He exhibited grace and truth. And the only place you find the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth is in Christ. A lot of religions struggle with this. Okay? And this is where a lot of hurt comes from. is because different groups don't understand that Christ and Christ alone is the source of perfect grace and perfect truth. Because he didn't didn't ignore that woman's sin, right? When he first talked to her, he didn't say, hey, are you innocent? He says, no, where are your accusers? I don't condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. I don't condemn you, grace. Now go and leave your life of sin, truth. And this was something else Jesus did frequently. In John 5, 1 through 14, Jesus heals a lame man. And as he's talking to him after this, He says to him, now stop sinning lest something worse happen to you in eternity. See, he was concerned about the day-to-day, but he was concerned about the man's eternity. Right? Jesus wasn't afraid to call sin, sin. He didn't withhold love until they figured it out, but he wasn't afraid to call sin, sin. And for some reason, this is something else the church seems to be afraid to do more and more. We don't want to be labeled cruel and narrow-minded. Who are we to be ashamed of the truth of Christ? I mean, really. Here's the thing about truth. It's true whether or not you want to believe it. I could tell you that 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 4, but I'd be wrong. You can tell me that there's another way to heaven besides Christ, but you're wrong. And if Christ is willing to stand for truth, am I willing to stand for truth? Can you show the, the chart? This is not mine. I found this in a book. Um, And like a fool, I didn't write down what book or author it is. All I know is it's not mine, but it's a great chart, right? And this is where a lot of religions struggle. So you've got truth and no truth. You have grace and no grace. The truth was that woman had earned a death sentence. Legalism would have given her that death sentence. Grace is freedom from the penalty of sin. A system of religious liberalism would have given her that freedom. They said, yeah, you're good, we're fine. But where you find grace... Neither do I condemn you. Where you find truth, now go now and leave your life of sin. She found and we find the person of Christ. So grace and truth should be hallmarks of the Christian's life. We can't withhold mercy and compassion and forgiveness until they get it figured out. Where's the love? Where's the grace? But we can't, in the name of love, ignore sin. Jesus didn't. In Luke thirteen three, Jesus says, "Unless you repent, you too will all perish." Jesus wasn't afraid to address the harsh realities of sin. Neither can we. Imagine, all right? We're gonna we're gonna use our imagination. We're in the jungle, right? We go hiking to the top of that waterfall. We're all up at the top. It's a long way down. We're enjoying the views, and we notice someone trying to take a selfie, right? And they're getting closer to the edge because they want more of the background in it, right? So we sit there and we watch them. Man, that guy's getting close to the edge. Somebody should say something. Yeah, hope he doesn't fall. But inevitably, he falls. Inevitably, he perishes. And so the officials come to investigate, and they say, You guys watched this man fall to his death, and you said nothing? And we reply with, I I didn't want to intrude on his life. I I just wanted to respect his decisions. You know, maybe my truth isn't his truth. I, I was really doing it out of love for who he was. I mean, who am I? Like, I don't think I had that kind of relationship with him. How terrible would that be? How terrible would that be if you watched someone fall over the edge of a mountain because you didn't want to intrude on their life? Guys, Christians do this every single day. Okay? We, we, I've been guilty of this. I will be guilty of this. I, I'm fighting against this. But the matter is, If we're not intentionally focused on loving people with the same sort of heart Christ did, it is way too easy to get wrapped up in ourselves and ignore what is going on around us. Because make no mistake, sin kills. Sin kills relationships, it kills families, it kills communities, it kills churches. And if left unrepented, sin will kill eternally. How in the world can you claim to love someone if you're willing to not address the sin that will send them to hell? I mean, if I claim to love someone, hey, do you know God? Nah. Okay, cool. Do I really love that person if I'm okay with them going to hell? I mean, there's a reason Jesus went after people's hearts. Because he knew that the symptoms were indications of the root cause, and that was what he wanted to address. Do we? Do we care? I mean, do we, are we truly burdened, grieved? Are we grieved by the idea that someone we know might go to hell? Or are we more scared of the uncomfortable conversation that might have to start us down that path? You know what's going to be a lot harder for someone to hear? I'm sorry, your name's not in the book of life. That's going to be so much harder to hear than a difficult conversation now. I want to be like Jesus, man. I want to look at the people around me And I want want my heart to break for them. I want to be bold enough to ask the hard questions that will get to their heart. I want to take the time to dive deep to get to their heart. I want to look past the shallow and focus on who they are as a person and where they're going to spend eternity. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus looked at those Pharisees and he loved them. And so we took the time to stop them from stoning a woman, to ask them about their hearts, and to cause them to reflect. I think one of the most beautiful parts about that story is that not a single Pharisee remained. Right? I think it's incredible that we see this example of, okay, if we're willing to go deep, people responded. I think of how we interacted with that woman. I think of the emotion she felt. I think of the pain she felt. And I think of how she must have just been dumbfounded by the person of Christ that would have revolutionized her world does our love revolutionize the world i mean here's a question i don't like to think about but i think about if you removed the american church would society suffer if you shut down if you shut down the american church would society miss us i hope so they should Why? Because the same kind of revolutionary love should mark our lives. Right? I mean, the songs we sang were beautiful. And I loved hearing Matt share. I loved the scripture that he tied into it. And this picture we get of Christ. And this picture that we get of who God is. And so my question in all of this, in this story, when I look at Jesus interacting with the Pharisees, when I look at Jesus interacting with the woman, my question is, is that what we look like? If you ask those people, if you ask the people who feel the church isn't for them and God is against them, if you told them that conversation and said, okay, put Sam in one of the two categories, would they put me with Christ or would they put me with the Pharisees? Would they put our church with Christ or would they put our church with the Pharisees? Would they put the churches in Richland County with Christ or with the Pharisees? These aren't fun questions, but if we can answer them truthfully maybe we can start to look more and more like Christ in our day-to-day lives. See, here's, we're going to go into history just a little bit, right? Christians did not name themselves Christians. The word Christian was come up with by the society around them who needed a word to describe the followers of Christ. And they came up with Christian because this person looks like Christ, right? It's where we get Christian. If that word didn't exist, would society around us be able to define us as Christians? Would society around us be able to look at us and say, ah, oh, man, we need, we need some way to describe that group of people. They really look like Christ. Let's call them a Christian. Is that a word that the world around us today would be able to come up with based on how we live, based on the way we love, based on the questions we ask, based on the conversations we have, based on how we treat people, based on how we interact with people? I don't know. Sometimes, Yeah. Sometimes, no. So we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing day to day? I mean, what am I doing in my life? Am I seeking out people to love? Am I seeking out opportunities to show compassion and to show mercy? Or am I content to just kind of fly under the radar and say, boy, I hope somebody comes along for that person? I look at Christ. I look at this interaction. I'm blown away by the love. I mean, I am floored by the love, the love that he showed for those Pharisees because he loved them enough to ask the difficult questions and he loved them enough to address their hearts. Do I? And then I look at Christ and that woman and I look at the love that protected her, the love that stood up for her when no one else would. I mean, Jesus says to his disciples, whatever you have done to the least of these, you have done to me. What have we done to the least of these? Would we be comfortable treating Christ the same way we treat the least of these? And you can fill in that least of these however you want. Would we be comfortable treating Christ like that? Because what Christ did was Christ threw out what everybody expected, to love that woman. What am I concerned with? Am I driven by a love that cares about where people are going to spend eternity. Christ was, and I want us to be like Christ. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. It's utterly unfathomable. I can't even begin to describe how powerful and beautiful the love of Christ is. Interactions like this give us a glimpse of it, right? Do people see that love When they look at us. In this story, are we the Pharisee or are we Christ? These are the hard questions we've got to ask ourselves. I know how I want to be able to answer. And my prayer is that we're all willing to surrender whatever agenda we may have so that we can look more like Christ to the world around us. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are always good, despite our shortcomings, despite who we are, despite what we we struggle with, despite our sins. I mean, every single one of us could be paraded up here with our sins aired out. And I thank you. I thank you with everything in me that you looked at our sins and you said, I don't condemn you, that you set us free out of love so that we could enter into a relationship with you. I mean, your word promises us that you have come, that we may have life and have it to the fullest, and I thank you that that is what's available to us through your sacrifice. So please, teach us. Teach us to be more like you. Remake us constantly to be more like you. Let the world look at us and see you. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.